Space, the final frontier. Have you ever actually thought about that line? What does that even mean? Is our exploration of space some kind of weird replay of Taming the West? Because then we're going to have all sorts of problems. Not that we haven't actually had problems. Space travel thus far has not been quite as crazy as the Old West, but we're pretty terrible at going to space. Hey everyone, Trace here. Welcome back to Seeker Plus. Today, we're going to break down the science of humans going to space. This is a re-air of an episode from 2015, and over the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to dig into the engineering and failures of our attempts to leave our planet, get out into the solar system and beyond. This isn't your shiny, happy space documentary, but it's going to be awesome. So let's kick into it. If you think about the technology of like the 40s, 50s, and 60s, they were launching things into space and they didn't even have computers as powerful as what you have in your pocket right now, even if you just have a phone from 2001. It doesn't matter. It's more powerful than what they were going to space with. And that's insane, right? The the first rockets were actually 700 years ago in China and the Middle East with the invention of gunpowder. They didn't necessarily have to use them as weapons. Some of them were used for fireworks and entertainment and other purposes, but these were the very first rockets or missiles, things that were self-propelled projectiles. In the 30s and 40s, the Nazis in Germany started to create long-distance rockets. They were trying to hit their enemies in Europe, and the most successful that they were able to invent was the V-2 rocket. They moved away from solid gunpowder and they invented cool new rocket engines and nozzles and things that would make the propellant just flow better, become more efficient. And one of those was getting away from that gunpowder and going to liquid fuel. It was an alcohol and liquid oxygen mix. And they would spray it and then ignite it. And that little spray would burn with such incredible efficiency that they could launch rockets and unfortunately hit places like Britain. It was bad. However, it really pushed rocketry forward. World War II saw a lot of advances in rocketry, and the key really was efficiency. A lot of it was, you know, making sure that the engineering was sound so that things didn't explode. But ideally, efficiency could answer some of those problems. You wanted to make sure that the rocket engine, which is essentially a nozzle that focuses all of this energy out of the bottom of the rocket, was as efficient as possible because that would propel the rocket. So funnily enough, a publication, Astronautics, issue 38, October 1937, had a pretty funny quote that I found. A good rule for rocket experimenters to follow is this. Always assume that it will explode. That was pretty good, 1937. Missiles and weapons uh, were, were bad, obviously. No one is saying otherwise. But they pushed rocketry forward as they were trying to hit targets further and further and further away. But it wasn't the only reason. And by the end of the war, the Soviet Union and the United States had both started their own rocketry programs. Of course, many of the rocket engineers were kind of pilfered from other parts of the world. There were some homegrown engineers, but there was a lot of Germans as well because they were the ones that had been the most successful thus far. Rockets were going to the edge of space as early as 1942 when the first successful A-4 rocket hit the edge of space. And Dr. Walter Robert Dornberger turned to Werner von Braun, one of the fathers of modern rocketry, and he said, do you realize what we accomplished today? Today, the spaceship was born. That's a pretty huge deal. From something so negative as weapons and war, it's kind of incredible that something so inspiring like space travel came out of it, right? Without these rockets, we never would have gotten so high up off of the Earth. 
And in fact, that happened for the first time in October 4th of 1957, Sputnik 1 was launched, and it purposefully got so high that it left Earth and orbited. It was the first artificial satellite. You could tune in on your radio and hear it go beep, beep, beep. It was really neat, uh, but also terrifying. And in the United States went into this whole kind of space fever where they didn't know what was going to happen, and it was this new uncharted territory. Imagine discovering that you could put a ship in the ocean for the first time, and the people that you had, you know, that you were fighting or Cold War fighting, I guess, were the first ones to do it. You'd freak out. So this is kind of the same. November 3rd, 1957, Laika, who is a dog, was launched into space with Sputnik 2. And then on April 12th, 1961, Vostok 1 was launched when Russian Lieutenant Yuri Gagarin became the first human to orbit Earth. It was a 108-minute flight. He went 202 miles. It was crazy. April 12, 1961 is still known as Yuri's Night today, and people all over the world celebrate it. Though at the time, again, Really freaky because the United States didn't really have their space act together, quite. Then in July of 1958, we founded the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA. It had a budget of $89 million, which in today's money would be about $736 million. And Alan Shepard was launched into space a few years later in 1961. He was the first American in space. And in the same year, May of 1961, JFK said to a joint session of Congress, I believe this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. And to try not to slip into a JFK accent that would have been really bad because it's tough. But in 1962, John Glenn became the first American to orbit the earth. Of course, Russians had already done that. So we had to top him somehow. So we started heading to the moon. Um, eventually, July 20th of 1969, we achieved our goal. Neil Armstrong took... Uh, it piloted Apollo 11 all the way to the moon. Of course, we went around the moon. We had to go step by step, but this is a brief history. Most of this stuff, I assume a lot of you know. The Apollo program at that point was spending about $5.9 billion uh, a year. NASA in general spending $5.9 billion a year. That was its peak budget. That would be $41 billion today. Um, and he got there and he stepped out onto the moon's surface and he said, one small step for a man one giant leap for mankind. The radio cut out the A, but it was there. Eventually, we got really good at going to space. We could get to space pretty easily, or so it seemed. We got so good at going to space that when the Challenger disaster happened in January of 1986, we were surprised. People were surprised. Not necessarily NASA. They were always worried. But the public was shocked because we got really good. Space became something we just visited all the time. The first space station was put up in 1971. Mir was up there in 1986. And now the ISS, which was put up in, 19, in 1998, and it's still going today. Private space companies are even going up there now. And yet space is still really, really dangerous, and it's still really far away. Space is 100 kilometers up, or about 62 miles. That's the Kármán line. And someone had to decide that that became space because it's not clear. The atmosphere doesn't just stop. It's a very fuzzy boundary. So at 62 miles up, now you're in space. And let me tell you, that is a tough 62 miles. It's basically when a hard vacuum begins to affect matter differently, and that matter is sometimes us. Let's talk about the people that have to ride those rockets into space, which is just insane. Sitting on a giant missile and going into space. What's that about? In the beginning, of course, 
we were just sending the machines up, you know, like Sputnik and Explorer 1, and they were just going up there and orbiting. Then we sent animals to make sure things were okay and that we could somehow survive up there. Dogs, monkeys, you know, all sorts of things. And finally, people. And how do you pick people to go to space? That's, I mean, that's a pretty interesting question. You don't know what's out there. You don't know what happens. You have to pick a specific individuals to go. So in 1959, NASA, which had only been founded, you know, a short time before, asked the military to list members who met some specific qualifications, which included jet aircraft experience, engineering training, and who were not taller than five foot 11, because every little inch counts when it comes to shooting something into space. Every pound, every kilogram, it's important to make sure to account for. So shorter people were actually better for space travel. They ended up selecting seven men, and they called them astronauts. They named them after balloonists, who were called argonauts, because they were to sail to a new uncharted ocean. They wanted people who had above-average health, not just physically. They weren't just physically strong, but they were also psychologically strong, because they had to endure a lot, because they didn't, again, know what was going on. They wanted people who had above average health, not just you know physically, like that's, that's important, but also psychologically, because they were gonna have to endure a lot and be under a lot of scrutiny and pressure. They picked these seven guys for the Mercury Space Program, the first men to go into space. And they put them through every laboratory test they could think of. NASA lists it on their website and they say they x-ray mapped each man's body. They thoroughly inspected their eyes, ears, nose, and throat. They put them through chemical, encephalographic, and cardiographic tests. They, spot, they had special physiological examinations that they invented just to see what was going to happen when they made them ride a bicycle for a long time and they checked their radiation count. They checked how much water was in their body. They checked the specific gravity of the whole body. They mapped their heart. They did all of this stuff. And they think that it might actually be the most complete medical history on any human ever (laughs) because they honestly did not know what was going to happen. In 1964, after, of course, successfully launching these men into space, they started recruiting more astronauts and getting more people. And as they recruited more and more, they realized maybe it was better not to just have engineers and test pilots and, you know, jet aircraft pilots, but also scientists. So they switched to academics from flight experience and recruited scientist astronauts where a minimum doctorate level degree or equivalent experience was required in order for you to become an astronaut. They asked for people who were good in the natural sciences and medicine and engineering. Today, Funnily enough, in 2013, they just started a new astronaut class, and you could have applied for, to be an astronaut on the government's website for job applications, usajobs.gov, which is crazy. They did not, unfortunately, want a psych major who knows how to make internet stuff, but, you know, you got to try, right? The basic qualifications that they wanted for astronauts today are a bachelor's degree in engineering, biological science, physical science, or math, three years of related professional experience, or 1,000 hours of pilot in command jet aircraft, or an advanced degree in some kind of engineering or math, etc. Basically, they also wanted to make sure that you could pass their long-duration spaceflight physical, which is essentially a really intense physical. You also have to be a U.S. citizen or dual citizenship, which is kind of funny. The thing is, though, once you're selected, 
that's the easy part. It seems like all of those things, that seems pretty tough, right? But once you're selected, you have to pass astronaut training. Now, to go back a little bit to the Mercury 7, I went to a lecture with John Glenn, first man to orbit, first American to orbit the Earth, and Michael Collins, who uh, you may recognize from the Apollo program. And they said at this lecture at the Smithsonian that they literally put them through every test they could think of. But there was always a doctor who would do it first because they were too expensive. And they didn't know, again, what would happen. So they did this test called the EIEO test, or eyes in, eyes out. Eyeballs in, eyeballs out. Remember those centrifuges that you see in movies that just spin around and around and around and around really fast? Apparently, those can go at such a high rate and then completely swap the rate, as in the little canister that they're sitting in flips around 180 degrees and they're instantly going the opposite direction as far as their body's concerned. So they wanted to test this on a very high level of Gs. So the doctor got in and he did it and he had the test stopped because he was hitting like seven, eight, nine Gs and then they flipped him around and wow, did he start coughing and he was very uncomfortable. So they stopped the test, they pulled him out and after some assessment, it turned out that all of his internal organs had gone from laying against his back to slamming into the back of his rib cage. This was a test that they wanted to do because they didn't know and they thought maybe they would be subjected to these Gs if something went wrong. Hopefully they weren't because they never tested that on the actual astronauts. Today, they don't do stuff like that anymore. It's not quite as intense as all that because we have a better idea of what's going on in space. The new class in 2013 included four men and four women, many of them in the military, many of them with PhDs and degrees in mathematics, engineering, and the sciences in general. They had a two-year training program that they should be coming out of just about now, I hope. We should see them coming out pretty soon. Some funny things from astronaut training that I thought might be interesting to talk about are that you have to be scuba qualified because you have to be able to swim in space, I guess. But scuba qualified so that you can prepare for spacewalk training. You have to be able to swim in your flight suit plus shoes, they mentioned that, for three pool lengths and tread water in that garb for 10 minutes. That seems pretty tough. Although there's no time requirement. You can do it in as long as it takes you to do it. The Vomit Comet, which is a 747 that goes up in a big parabolic thing and then comes down to drop pretty much at the rate of gravity, so you experience weightlessness. Maybe you've heard of this. They filmed the entirety of Apollo 13 on the Vomit Comet. Whenever they're floating, they're actually freaking floating, which is crazy. And they did this for astronaut training. They might do it as many as 40 times a day. They call it a Vomit Comet for a reason. It gives you about 20 seconds of weightlessness. They also do atmospheric pressure training, which is fairly intense. And not to mention actual systems training. You have to learn all of the aircraft systems, how everything works, how they work in your equipment and also others' equipments, like the Soyuz capsule that you'd have to use if you left the ISS and know how to read all of the manuals and understand all these other things. It's crazy. And that's on top of the physical training. Robert Heinlein is a uh, science fiction author, really great science fiction author, and he has a quote that NASA used in their astronaut training manual, and it said, once you get to Earth orbit, you're halfway to anywhere in the solar system, which is pretty awesome. So as far as NASA is concerned, there have been over 200 astronauts from 46 states and the District of Columbia. And those people have gone through this whole astronaut training, which is crazy. And most of them, for some reason, are from Ohio or New York. New York, I get. It's a huge population. But Ohio? What's up with that? 
It's the birthplace of aviation, sure, but it has more than 25 different astronauts. 78 space flights, three trips to the moon, 22,000 hours in space. The first person to walk on the moon, Neil Armstrong, Ohio. First American to orbit the Earth, John Glenn, Ohio. What's up, Ohio? I'm from Michigan. I'm not supposed to like give you props, but what up, props? That's a lot of astronauts. Space travel is very dangerous. I mean, really dangerous. It's probably the most dangerous 62-mile trip that humans have ever tried to do. 62 miles, remember, is how far space is away from us, about 100 kilometers. Space is dangerous. Only three people have actually died in space, but there have only been a few hundred who've probably ever gone. Only three people have ever died in space, officially. They're all on the Soyuz 11. It was in 1971. It decoupled from a Russian space station, the first of its kind, named the Salyut 1. And when it decoupled, a valve opened, and the astronauts didn't really know what was going on. I guess they would be cosmonauts because they're Russian. And what happened is the air slowly leaked out of their capsule. When they were found on the ground, a recovery team found them, and they were all three dead. The only three people to ever officially die in space. And just because they were the only three to die in space doesn't mean they were the only three to die for the cause. Space travel is dangerous. It's very dangerous. There are dangers at every stage of space travel, from training to descent, launch, malfunctions, explosions, fires, decompression, spacesuit failures, parachute failures. And those are just the ones related to the rocket itself, not just the development of the rocket and the development of the propellant. I mean, that's crazy, right? Here's some examples. Apollo 1 is a very famous example. In 1967, they had uh, these astronauts inside of the cockpit, and a fire started because there was too much oxygen, as I recall, and it killed all three of the astronauts in the capsule. They couldn't get the door open. They redesigned the door before they got to Apollo 2, so that would never happen again. But those three men did lose their lives. The lunar landing training vehicle in 1968 had a crash. There was a disaster of rocket engine igniting prematurely on a launch pad. That killed 126 people. And that was just on the ground. This is before we've even launched the rocket. We're just trying to figure out how to launch the rockets. And we've already lost a lot of people. But even once we do figure out how to lift them off the ground and get them up into the air, there are still problems. Like, for example, the Challenger explosion in 1986. Because the O-ring was too cold, they determined, and that killed all seven of the astronauts aboard, six engineer NASA astronauts and one teacher. Uh, that almost is a great highlight for how complicated space travel is. The weather in Florida was colder than they thought it was going to be, and one of the O-rings, which sealed a tank or kept what was in the tank inside the tank before it ran into the tube that it was connected to, cracked because it was too cold. And that little crack exploded and just lost the whole shuttle during launch. Just that one little thing. And a space shuttle has two and a half million moving parts. It's insane. There are also examples of in-space disasters. Apollo 13, very famously, there's a movie, but also you should check out the history. It's really cool. Um, an oxygen tank exploded, and they had to slingshot around the moon and get back home as if it were a lifeboat using the moon lander that they could now not use to land on the moon. The space station Mir had a fire in 1997. The astronauts were able to put that out, but fire suppression systems in space were advanced because of it. The Voskhod 2 in 1965, they had a spacewalk, but they couldn't get back into 
the space capsule because his suit malfunctioned. And of course, when you're in space, you just, when it malfunctioned in this way, it kind of ballooned. <laughs> so he just let some of the pressure out and opened the door, which is very lucky. 1971, Soyuz 11, another three men died. There's also re-entry problems. Being in space is tough, but coming back, that's actually one of the hardest parts. What happens is as you're coming back into the Earth's atmosphere, the friction of all of the atoms of air that are hitting you heat up your spacecraft. That's why there are heat shields. Unfortunately, in 19 or in 2003, sorry, uh, Columbia had a heat shield damage during launch by debris that had fallen and hit the heat shield on part of the wing of the shuttle. And when it was coming back in, even though they inspected it in space and they thought it would be okay, they tried to re-enter the atmosphere and they lost all seven of the astronauts on board when the Columbia exploded. It was terrible. And it was not the first time that the shuttle has exploded, but we'll come back to that in a minute. The Soyuz 1 in 1967 had a parachute failure. They got all the way to space, got all the way back. They attempted manual reentry and parachute did not slow down the spacecraft and killed the one cosmonaut inside. So this is interesting to me because when you ask a member of the general public how dangerous space travel is, they're probably like, eh, you know, it's fine. They get up there, they come back. It's no big deal. But it's not safe and it's not easy. And there are so many things that can go wrong and so many people whose jobs it is who are working and putting their whole heart and soul into making these programs, these, these, these machines push people further than they've ever been before. And this is one of those times where space companies can't hide because things go wrong. Look, America loves the space shuttle. I love the space shuttle. I visited many of them at the museums already. And as I've mentioned, I went to space camp. I am that kind of a nerdy guy. And yet, they built six shuttles and only five went to space. Sorry, Enterprise. And two of them were lost. That's a huge failure rate. They were designed in the 1970s and they were built in the 1980s. So even when they were still using them into the 2000s, they were using pretty old equipment. Even though it had been updated, it wasn't new. This was technology that was frozen in time. And I miss them, but I am glad that they're retired because we don't want to lose any more. It's time for new stuff. Space planes like Virgin Galactic. Of course, they lost a pilot and a plane in, in 2014. Private companies like SpaceX and Orbital Sciences, but they've also lost spacecraft with explosions and things. And then, so, I mean, look, space is dangerous. <laughs> it's not just because of the rockets. There are other things with space travel that are also dangerous. The problem with space travel isn't just getting to space. It's also, once you're there, keeping the people alive, keeping them sustained with food, oxygen, water. Many of those things have to be shipped up there, and that is expensive. It's like $1,000 for every pound of gear to get it into space. That's a lot. But let's talk about spacesuits for a minute. Spacesuits are cool. You see them in movies. You think about them in, in books and comic books and things. A spacesuit is officially called an EVA. It's an extravehicular activity suit. It's technically the smallest spacecraft you could have, right? Because it's literally just on the other side of your skin. And it's a lot of stuff in there that could happen. And there are a lot of layers. There's no easy way to get in and out of a spacesuit. It takes some time. In 2013, an Italian astronaut almost drowned inside of his spacesuit while outside of the International Space Station. It was scary. One and a half liters of water were draining into his helmet 
and he literally almost drowned in space. He got inside in time, he got the helmet off, it was fine, but lots can go wrong, especially considering there's a lot happening just in this EVA suit. There's also the MAG, which is a maximum absorbency garment, which is literally, it's a diaper. It's just a diaper, but they're NASA. They can't just call it a diaper. It's called a MAG, but, you know, it's, it's just a diaper. So the MAG isn't literally like a diaper like you would think of it for babies. It has what's called um, a sheath that you would put your penis into so that you would make sure that the urine in zero or microgravity goes where you need it to go, right? And there are three sizes. There's small, medium, and large. And none of the astronauts wanted to get a small. So they were all peeing wrong, essentially. So instead, they renamed them all extra large, immense, and unbelievable. And people pick the right size usually, which is pretty amazing. There's also the liquid cooling for temperature regulation or the LCVG, because you'd think that space being cold, right? It's a cold, harsh vacuum. It's not actually inside of a spacesuit, it's pretty warm and your body heat heats it up. So they have this liquid cooling stuff, which is just tubes that run water along your skin to cool you down, not unlike a high-performance computer. There are even fans inside of your spacesuit, which you have controls for, that you can move the air around and cool your face down. Although the thing that always bothered me about spacesuits when it came to fans and liquid rolling around your body is, what if you get an itch? What do you do? Nothing because you're in a spacesuit in the middle of space. There's also the in-suit drink bag, which is sort of like one of those things you get on a backpacking trip. It's just a plastic thing with a tube, and it's filled with about 32 ounces of, of liquid so you can drink while you're out there. Because sometimes EVAs, when they're repairing things, can last a whole day, eight hours or more. There's also a wrist mirror. And it doesn't sound that technical because it's not. It's literally a mirror on your wrist. Surrounded by all this technology, and yet we just put a mirror on their wrist so they can reflect the LCD panel that's on their chest and see what's going on with their spacesuit. Um, the stuff on the LCD is displayed backwards so that they can see it in the mirror. But that's just crazy to me. You have a mirror, come on. But whatever. There's also, the most interesting thing I think about these things is the gloves. Because everything hinges on your hands when you're in space, right? You wanna make sure you can manipulate what you're doing. Imagine going into space and not being able to use your hands well. It's very difficult to make a cover for your hand that can protect you from radiation, keep you at the right temperature, and the right atmosphere because hands can move in so many different ways. They have to be able to use tools. They have to be able to have fine motor skills. And sometimes it gets so difficult that the pressure that the astronauts are under and the, the, the gloves themselves cause their fingernails to fall off. This is real. Half of the injuries astronauts reported from 2003 to 2004 were hand-related because of the gloves in a lot of cases. Surprising. But aside from having an, a very complicated personal spacecraft like an EVA suit, there's also just the dangers of being in zero gravity or microgravity in general. So on the NASA website, you, there was a quote that says, gravity is not just a force, it's also a signal a signal that tells the body how to act. And that is a really awesome way to describe gravity for the human body. Because if you think about it, you have never been outside of gravity, chances are. Maybe here and there on a roller coaster, or if you rode the vomit comet, maybe then. But for the most part, you have never been outside of the pull of gravity. And neither has almost anything else on our planet. They all evolved with that gravity 
pulling on them constantly. So once you put a human body into space, there's no gravity and things change. Blood circulation gets messed up. And in fact, in the first days in space, any new red blood cells that your body has made disappear. You lose 10 to 15% of the mass of your blood just going into space within the first few days. Also compromises the immune system for similar reasons. It's hard for the blood to get around your body and take what it needs to go where it needs to go. You also end up with muscle loss because without gravity, you're not using your muscles. Anybody who goes to the gym knows that they'll get bigger muscles if they work out those muscle groups. And if you're working out none of them, they're all going to get smaller. There's also fluid shift, which is kind of disappointing for the astronauts and probably uncomfortable because without gravity pulling all of our fluids down, fluid gets evenly distributed throughout our whole meat sack and we end up with puffy faces and your eyeballs change shape and your legs get thinner and it's really weird. On top of that, that's just the short-term effect. The longer you're in space, the more your body adapts to that space. You lose bone density very quickly. You lose more muscle mass the longer you're there. So after one to six months in space, astronauts' muscle volume decreased by 13%, according to NASA research. And this is including their exercise that they're required to do every single day to try and keep that muscle mass. On top of that, astronauts in space are taller because the spine has little discs in between each of the vertebrae that without the gravity load, expand. So you end up just a little, little bit taller when you're in space. It might be kind of nice, I guess. There's also radiation. That's a big one. When you're on Earth, the iron core of our planet, which spins, creates a dynamo, which creates a magnetic field that keeps the sun's cosmic rays from hitting our planet quite as easily. On top of that, there are layers in the atmosphere, like the ozone layer that blocks some of that radiation. And all of that stuff protects us. But outside of the Earth's atmosphere, some of that stuff gets through. Radiation is measured in sieverts. One sievert is associated with a 5.5% increase in fatal cancers. And on Earth, we only get point, ready for this? Zero, 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 one sievert every day. It's like a millisievert. On a trip to Mars, a human will receive a whole body x-ray scan every five to six days. That's how many sieverts you get. That's a lot. It's a lot more. So even if we did overcome the short-term issues of getting to space and getting these EVA suits to work without drowning people and to get radiation blocked, which is very difficult. The Earth's atmosphere is like a one-meter-thick block of metal between you and the sun, really. And that's tough. You can't launch that into space. But even if we got over all that, if we wanted to stay up there for any length of time, we're going to have to figure out how to, you know, do it which has never happened officially in space, by the way. There has never been a report of SpaceX, and they literally wear body monitors all the time. So they would probably know. Though, uh, no reports. Plus, blood flow is limited. Maybe that would impact your performance. I don't know. Um, but space masturbation, that may have happened. But we don't actually know that much about sex in space. We don't know how the human body, or even if the human body can perform and procreate in space when it comes to this. And we will probably need to figure that out if we were going to go for any long period of time or try and colonize anywhere. Food in space is very difficult. Right now it's shipped up. It would have to be, we'd have to figure out how to grow it. And that's very difficult because it requires a lot of space, a lot of nutrients, and a lot of other resources that we don't even know about, like, or that we don't need, humans. Right now, we get to space in what's called a chemical rocket. 
That's what they refer to them in, in a more official capacity. It's, it, think about the shuttle, for example. Chemical rocket means that it's using a chemical, burning a chemical to get there. I mean, ideally, we could use something like a space elevator, which is literally like a regular elevator in a building, but it goes to space. But nobody's been able to invent anything like that yet. So right now, we're using chemical rockets. If you think of the space shuttle, you get that big orange tank that's attached to the bottom of the shuttle, standing upright. That's filled with liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, and it is not reusable. They build a new one every time that they launch a rocket. They've launched 135 times. Then they have two sticks that attach to the side, those white rockets that look very much like missiles. They contain solid fuel. The solid fuel inside of the rocket boosters on the side, which are called SRBs or solid rocket boosters, is a solid fuel, and it's in an 11-point star formation, which is kind of neat. It's baked that way, and then they put it in there so that they can have the most surface area exposed for the burn. So they attach all of those things together. They run the fuel through the rocket engines on the shuttle itself, which are 99.9% efficient. It's kind of impressive. They get up there into space, and they can lift all with all of that force that little teeny shuttle with like seven or eight people in it. Chemicals are too heavy. We need to get fuel either when we're up there or we need to find a way to get up there without using as much fuel, and that's tough. But there are some plants are some ways that we can do that. A lot of times now when we get into space, we're using solar panels when we're up there because the sun is ever-present and constantly shooting energy at us. So we can capture it and use it for electricity for satellites and things. We do that all the time. The Voyager missions used tiny nuclear reactors to generate electricity, and that will last for decades and decades, although it will run out eventually. But there are alternative propulsion methods, like ion propulsion, which are used right now for some probes and satellites, and it moves things around by shooting a beam of electrically charged particles out the back of the probe. It's generated by solar panels, so pretty renewable, easy to get. But the technology doesn't really move very much. It's like tiny amounts. And you have to leave it on for a long time to go fast. And then you have to turn it on the opposite direction to be able to slow down for the exact same amount of time. So if you leave it on for a week to get up to speed, you have to start slowing down a week in advance. It's really tough, still being researched, not particularly useful for, say, going to Jupiter. You'd want something a little stronger. Like maybe nuclear pulse propulsion or Project Orion, which was invented in the 50s or thought up. And that was the, it's, it's terrible. It's a terrible idea on so many levels. It's essentially that you blow up nuclear bombs out the back of the rocket. It's not a great idea. But uh, they were researching it until the 60s, thinking maybe it'll work. Then they came up with Project Daedalus, which is a fusion rocket. They would create microfusion, where atoms would fuse, creating energy that they could use out the back of the rocket again, propel them in a direction. Of course, we haven't actually figured out fusion yet, so it's a great idea, but we can't use it. And it would need a lot of fuel to go interstellar, like huge amounts of fuel. Although it is pretty promising, it's still decades off. On top of that, for the original product, Project Daedalus, which they came up with in like the late 50s, I think, early 60s, you'd actually have to go to Jupiter first and get some isotopes from Jupiter that would make it all work. So that's, that doesn't really go. There's also a spin-off, the Bassard Interstellar Ramjet, which would fly through space sucking up protons because space may be a vacuum, but there's still stuff out there. And then, you know, somehow fuse those protons I love space imagination. And it's, this was all NASA stuff. It's really, really cool. They collect fuel as they go. That's a great idea. And you know, that's not actually 
out of the realm of possibility. For example, there are currently things being worked on now like solar sails. Now, it sounds exactly like what it is. The sun is constantly sending out solar wind, it's called, which is a bombardment of cosmic radiation and particles. And some of those particles have enough energy that if we use a solar sail or a large piece of specialized sort of fabric, we can capture that energy and use it to accelerate away from the sun. It's essentially a pirate ship in space, like I said. You're literally riding sunlight, which is amazing. But also problematic in that, again, it starts very slow. It's difficult to maintain. On top of that, the further away from the sun you get, the less solar wind you're going to experience. Though you could also put a laser on your spacecraft and shoot the laser at the, the sail and generate your own wind because that's cool. Although you'd need like a megawatt laser, which is, that's just too much. It's too much laser to get into space. There's also the magnetic sail, same thing, but with magnets. And the new James Webb Space Telescope might actually use solar sail technology, which is pretty exciting. We'll have to see. Some other ones that they're trying out that NASA's and other companies are looking into, um, you may have heard of the Impossible Drive or the M-Drive, the E-M-Drive. It's a British invention. And it's called that because, well, it's supposed to be impossible, and it probably is. But this British company that invented it said that it can work even in a hard vacuum. Allegedly, the M-Drive creates thrust without propellant. It's a closed box and they bounce microwaves inside of that box, and the thing moves. Yeah, I don't really get it either, but it's impossible drive, they say. There's also NASA is working on the warp drive, which, holy crap, Star Trek, yeah, but they say that it probably doesn't work yet. But that's the Eagle Lab. They're working on it at the Johnson Space Center in Texas. They say it might work. And essentially what'll happen is it'll create a field around the ship and allow it to move through that field, but they are still decades away from that too. Right now, pretty much what we got is chemical rockets, which I just badmouthed. Sorry. Uh, in the end, the best way to get around space is to not go the long way, you know, to not travel from here to there slowly, laboriously, using a sail or chemical rockets or fusion or even warp drives, but to find a way to slip through the fabric of space using a wormhole. It's complicated physics stuff. We don't even know if it's possible, though theoretically it is possible to essentially bend space. Think of a piece of paper and you're in one corner and you want to get to the other corner. The fastest way to get there is to put the corners next to each other. And that's what a wormhole does. Physics do allow for wormholes to happen. We've just never seen one, and we don't know how to create it, and we'd create a lot of energy. Uh, it would need a lot of energy to be created. It's called an Einstein-Rosen bridge. So when in doubt, you know, just bend the universe, right? That's easy enough. Not really. <laughs> and if that blows your mind, it probably should. Because at one point, space travel in general was blowing our minds. I don't know if you got that from all five of these episodes that we've done on space travel, but space travel is crazy. It's crazy inspiring, it's dangerous, it's really amazing, and it needs a lot of imagination. There's currently the 100-year Starship project going on right now. It's scientists from all over the world coming together to try and figure out within a century how to get to the next star. This is happening now. They're figuring it out now because space travel is incredible. It's one of my favorite topics, and the reason is because it's 
amazing. I can't use those words enough. It's awesome. And in the real way that that word is supposed to be used, it's bringing awe to people. And it's always done that, and it probably always will do that. Thank you so much for hanging out with me here on Seeker Plus. This episode originally aired, like I said, at the top way back in 2015, and so much has changed in space travel since then. We're getting ready to retire Hubble. SpaceX sends a Tesla to orbit the sun. Man, space is crazy, y'all. Do you have a favorite moment? Tweet about it and tell us. We are at Seeker. You can find me at Trace Dominguez. You can also find more science on YouTube and Facebook. Just look for the little Seeker and our Chevron. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you loved this episode. And if you did, please leave us a rating on your favorite podcast app and share us with your friends. The original script was written by Blair Battenberg and Andreas Pearson. In 2018, the staff is Trace Dominguez as the producer and host. The associate producer is Victoria Barrios. The production assistant is Megan Bates. It was edited by Alex Estevez. And our intern is Debbie Hainem. Thanks again for listening to Seeker Plus, everyone. We'll be back next week with more deep research into our world. Thank you.